Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. Big boss man, don't you hear me when I call? Big boss man, don't you hear me when I call? A poem, Mama America. Africa is grandma now. Mama, mommy, we need your milk of understanding. While we learn to understand ourselves, we need your unconditional love and the magic mercy of your maternal instinct. Let us shout with joy as we pass through your gates and kiss the ground where you gave us birth and breath. Mama, America, Mama, America, show us your freedom out. Help us climb the stairs. Guide us along your lighted path that leads to our transcendence. Mother, we will be good children, proud sons and daughters. Just let us rest and grow so close upon your breast. Our guest this week is Pompey Fixico, a black Seminole Maroon descendant. Pompey Fixico, president of the Semaroon Historical Society, is an extraordinary man. One-time amateur boxer, actor, and musician, the L.A.-based Pompey only learned of his black Seminole Maroon descendant status at the age of 52. Pompey counts Abraham and Bowlegs as forebears. His family fought battles in Oklahoma when the U.S. Civil War broke out. He has documented his lineage on the Dawes Rolls. When he learned of his heritage, which his mother had hidden from him all his life, he vowed to make 300 appearances to raise awareness of black Seminole Maroons in America and to raise awareness among the descendants of black Seminole Maroons. These descendants gather in Brackettsville, Texas each year. They've welcomed Pompey into their fold. He has spoken around the nation and attended the UN. He has spoken around the nation, attended the United Nations as a Seminole Maroon member of a multinational Maroon delegation and today, the now 74-year-old Pompey speaks to us about his heritage, about his forebears, and about his own story in seeking to spread recognition and harmony as a black Seminole Maroon descendant. Listen closely as he tells us his story. Greetings. I discovered my history and my historical legacy. Racially, I'm African Native American. Culturally, I'm an aspiring Seminole Maroon activist. But to the people of America who see me on the street, I'm just another flavor of black. I hope that today's discussion will change all that. Pompey, please trace back your lineage for us. My four grandparents. One is Seminole by blood and Seminole Maroon. One is Red Stick Creek Seminole Maroon. Another is African Cherokee Maroon, and the last is Mulatto African American White. Talk about your lineage with Abraham, the famous Black Seminole interpreter during the Second Seminole War. I'm related to Abraham in that Abraham's granddaughter 
was married to my documented great-grandfather, Papa Caesar. Also, there's another aspect of Abraham, that's Bolegs and Renty. My great-grandmother, she was a Bolegs, Judy Bolegs. Her father was Matt Bolegs, who had the biggest Bolegs family in Indian Territory after the Civil War. But it was something about Bolegs and Renty. Well, it turns out that Abraham had a son named Renty, R-E-N-T-Y. And there's little documentation on him, but Renty is some connection in the marriage naming traditions between Abraham's descendants and Bolegs. So my great-grandmother on one side, uh, Judy Bolegs, was married to Renty. I know that I'm related to Abraham because his grandchildren were half-brothers to my grandfather, Pompey Brunus Fixico. One of the main reasons I went there is because I always see these pictures of Abraham, and he looks like it's an etching, it's a drawing, a curly-headed mulatto. And I had been given, when I contacted Oklahoma Seminole Historic Preservation Officer, he gave me the daguerreotype photo of Abraham, Billy Bolegs, Jumper, and that party when they went to Washington, when they went to New York. It was at the American Hotel, and it was in Harper's Gazette. That picture, it was a big deal about Billy Bolegs. He was very popular. So I went there because I was invited and because I wanted to show the scholars, don't use this drawing showing he's a curly-headed mulatto. He was really fully African phenotype. And I said, I don't have nothing against curly-headed mulattoes. I'm almost one myself. But <laughs> I think we should get it right for his highly melanated people, descendants, who say, oh, wow. But it took more than a half century before you realized you had this distinguished genealogy. I was blessed 20 years ago at 52 years of age to finally have learned and verified this precious information. I almost didn't learn it. You see, my identity was stolen while I was in my mother's stomach and all the problems that go with it, which were many. Pop Afixico, Pop, where did you get your name? The name, that is a name that has been acquired after became 52 years old. Before, my name was Philip Vincent Wilkes. Who is your namesake, Pompey? My grandfather, Pompey Brona Fixico, was the son of Caesar Brona, the Seminole Maroon leader of the Oklahoma Seminole Brona Band, and Dinah Fixico. She was a Miccosukee, a full-blood Seminole, Oak D. Archie Band. She was married, but she was a high enough in Halaiswa, as far as her Wen clan status was, she could have another child with another person if it was diplomatically important or would benefit the group. Her father was Osa Ineha Fixico. That means the one who speaks for the Miko, the chief, who was Oak the Archie. It's a big history about him. And so Osa Ineha had served with Papa Caesar in the first Indian Home Guard all during the Civil War. So they had a special relation. What does the term or title Fixico mean? Fixico is a warrior title. It means heartless warrior. 
or is equal to a European equivalent, Sir Knight. That heartless means he would be heartless to anyone who endangered his people. It's equal to Harjo, which is basically the same level of warrior title. And normally, people who speak the language of Muscogean will call me Mr. Fixico because it is recognized as a warrior title. So Pompey was the name that Dinah Fixico used. It could have been in recognition that he was mixed blood. But I know definitely what I told you about Fixico. From the outside, Pompey, this can seem confusing. Help us understand the nomenclature here. Yes. Well, a black Seminole could be many farms. It could be someone who just escaped off the plantation and joined the Seminoles in the Second Seminole War. It could be someone who uh, had been helped by them. It could be someone that was given to them by the English as a, uh, a, a gift to the chief. The Maroons, by the uh, description of Maroons, generally throughout the Western Hemisphere, Maroons are those people who escape enslavement and they could cross a border. They find allies. It could be the asylum of a foreign country. It could be a person who helps them. Uh, it could be the environment. They could go into the swamp. And a maroon is a freedom fighter. And a maroon normally wins their freedom through taking these actions. And they maintain it through forming alliances with the environment, with the area with other people, and they maintain it in a maroon society. So it's important for me to call entitle myself as a Seminole maroon because the scholars have researched my family history and genealogy, and I am eligible to be designated as that. And these scholars are leading academics in the field. Dr. Kevin Mulroy who I would consider the world's leading authority on Seminole Maroons right now. Dr. Porter, he was really a black Seminole guy. You can't hardly find the word maroon in his work. But Kevin Mulroy, of course, he is a, a great admirer of Dr. Richard Price, who has the Maroon Society anthology. He even introduced me to Dr. Richard Price, and he says, uh, this is uh, Pompey Fixico, and Dr. Kevin Mulroy, he completed an essay on me that was accepted by the American Journal of Ethnohistory with my picture on the cover of the book and my Dawes Rose card behind me. And he called Dr. Richard Price, and he introduced me to him in Martinique over the phone. And Dr. Price told me, oh, all right. I'm going to be watching you. And so I send him everything. I send Kevin Mulroy. So actually, the true difference between that can be a state of mind. It can be someone who I identify myself as a Seminole Maroon descendant to make it safe. However, when I went to use of the Maroon to self-identify, attracted people in South America and in the Caribbean. I was brought to Suriname, where there are at least 125,000 Maroons coming from six tribes. And I was brought there, and I told them I'm a Seminole Maroon descendant. And the ambassador said, no, your life is the life of a Maroon. Okay, if we're speaking Seminole Maroons, 
that would be in this particular country. You know, one of the hardest things to do for Maroons in the Western Hemisphere is to gain the population. Even in Jamaica, where they're in the different townships and stuff, it hasn't been published. I would say that I'm one, and I'm fighting for others to change their thinking. Give us an example. Let us take, say, the freedmen. They're different sections. You have freedmen in Oklahoma. You have Texas Seminoles in Brackettville. You have Muscogos in Mexico. And I don't know too much about Florida. So what are you saying? Let's say the Oklahoma freedmen. I don't ascribe to that name because I think that when they were uh, being a descendant, they should identify, I would like to see them identify as Seminole Maroon, but freedmen, they feel, has a legal implication to it. That means they should receive their allotments or they should receive any other thing that by blood received. Let's go back to Florida and let's look at how that occurred. You had Maroons that were closer within the cultural structure of the Seminoles. You had different levels of black Seminoles, which uh, Dr. Daniel Littlefield, he illustrates great in his book. But to me, the Maroons were closer to, there were even some who were inducted into the warrior clan, such as Suanatha uh, Abraham, you know, which Suwani warrior, he was actually inducted. That meant he had Hylaiswa. It's a raw, it's a form of royalty. So I can't give you that. I know in in Oklahoma. Okay, let's go back to that. How they got there was pure marinage. They were in Florida. The Second Seminole War came up, and it was a composition of those 395 enslaved people who escaped the plantation. It was those who had been with the Seminole Nation for generations, they're more in the maroon category. And there was other, there was the Estelusti. And so when General Jessup issued the first, what I call, Emancipation Proclamation, because it was based on the writings of John Quincy Adams in 1836, who said, by war, a slave may free himself. And so because they couldn't, that it was such tenacious uh opponents that the United States was fighting. They had the Army, Navy, and Marine Corps down there. They had to say a divide and conquer. General Jessup, you know, he says, well, okay, if we free your allies, your vassals and allies, see, the blacks were fighting for freedom, and the Seminoles were fighting not to be removed. So when blacks were offered that, and Prophet Abraham was in favor, and John Horse and those other Maroon-level members. That enabled them to go to Indian Territory. However, 11, 12 years later, the uh, United States went back on that agreement. It was Attorney General named Mason. This term Maroon, where does it come from? Well, you know, the Maroon is a corruption of Cimarron. And how many Seminole Maroons do you estimate are living in the United States today? The whole issue and part of my activism is to work to enlighten the black Seminole descendants that, in many cases, they can self-identify as Seminole Maroons. And I was speaking about 
how the, the black Seminoles got to Oklahoma. And they were a mixture of Esther Lusty people who had just escaped to them and on and on. As I said, Dr. Daniel Littlefield, he brilliantly describes the different categories in his book. So now I say that the mere fact that they were able to fight the Second Seminole War and force General Jessup to come up with his Emancipation Proclamation, Jessup's Proclamation, they even those who came out of and ran away from the plantation, if they were able to go to Oklahoma, they achieved a level of marinage. There's different levels. You can have petite marinage. You can run out for a day. You can break the plantation equipment, or you can be a single person lives under a tree, or you can find and form an alliance with the environment high up in the hills, or you can, uh, with people, with a government, you can take advantage of the sovereignty and the asylum of a government. You can, there are different levels. The highest level of marinage is Haiti. They escaped slavery, fought their oppressors. That's part of it, of a maroon society. Once you escape, if you form into a society, you turn and fight your former oppressor and enslaver to maintain your freedom. So back to those in Oklahoma. When they were allowed to go to Oklahoma and become free, they achieved a maroon status right there. But when the uh, 12 years later, it was Attorney General Mason who revoked Jessup's proclamation saying that they were not free. And this was in 1849, which caused the exodus to Mexico of John Horse and Wildcat. So now let's still look at those blacks who are definitely the are maroons who won their way. It was about a little over 500 of them. All those were maroons. Now their children became maroon descendants. But in the tradition of those Maroons in the Western Hemisphere, they aren't still fighting England or Spain, but they still call themselves Maroon because they're still on the land that they won. So they say, we're Maroons, even our babies are Maroons. Now, in Oklahoma, they were still on that land, but then when the Civil War came up, now the oppressive Creeks who wanted to enslave them and the other four civilized tribes, of five of them, they broke treaties with the United States, and that meant now they became officially pro-slavery. So what happened there is a little-known group that many people don't know about. It was known as Opasla Yehola's Loyal Indians. He was a Creek who had blood feud going on with the other Creek Indians who were joining the Confederacy. So uh, he rode around in Indian territory, U.S. Indian territory, while blacks and other pro-Union Indians came to him waiting for help. They fought three battles in Indian territory, and the last battle they lost, and they had to escape into Kansas on what is called the, the Trail of Blood on Ice that they don't talk about. And so when they escaped there, it was Jim Lane, a senator of Kansas, who formed the first Indian Home Guard. And it was mostly Creek Indians. It was secondarily Seminoles and some Cherokee. And it was my great-grandfather was a staff 
interpreter for the first Indian Home Guard, and it was many black interpreters. They fought 32 war battles during the Civil War. And when they came back, because they fought as loyal Indians, that's why the Confederate Indians were able to have a seat at the peace table at the Fort Smith Truce, where my great-grandfather, Caesar Broner, was an interpreter, along with Robert Johnson. And so they gained their marinage again. That was the second time that they gained it. But see, the whole problem is the education and Blacks who are calling themselves freedmen because they see a legal potential there. But that word didn't really come up until the Dawes Road as a legal definition. You can gain your marinage even more than once. And that's what actually they did. Then, one other point, when John Hart and Kawakache Wildcat, that was before the Civil War, 1849, says, no, I'm not going on with these repressive conditions by the dominant creek. And they escaped on their exodus to Mexico. That was another level of becoming Maroons, Marinage. All the big scholars like Joshua Giddings, he was a abolitionist, but he was contemporary of the Maroons. He called them exiles. Herbert Aptiker, William Sturdivant, and Dr. Daniel Littlefield, and Dr. Richard Price, who, as I said, Dr. Mulroy introduced me to by phone and told me he was, as a Seminole Maroon descendant, he said he was going to be watching me, and I sent him my stuff. Pompey, we know the big picture from what distinguished black Seminole Maroons you came from. How did you find out that you were a black Seminole Maroon descendant? You mean when I finally learned who I was? Oh, my God. Well, I'll say this. That's why I self-identify as a Seminole Maroon descendant. When I first, at 52 years old, confirmed the identity of my biological father, I connected with the Fixico and Bruna families. And they had no idea that I didn't know who my father was because it was messy. But to understand, to learn from them that the history was not only it was important, it was about to be lost. And there were four heirs, including me as one. But of those four heirs, I was the only one who would save the history. And so at 52 years into what would be a 32-year marriage, my wife was shocked at the thought that now I'm taking a vow of poverty. I'm putting this first. And I did that because as I looked at my life, where I say, well, I'm 52. I can't do all of those other things. I better do what's for the greater good. That's the name of my book that I'm working on, The Greater Good. That's how that came up. And as a result, my first mentor was Joseph Opala, Brief History of the Seminole Freedmen, and I devoured it. It established a lot. I established a library of 32 books on the relationship between blacks and Indians. He introduced me to the Gullah Geechee, which my brain was really going fast. After I met Dr. Kevin Moore Roy in person in Los Angeles, his book, Freedom on the Border, was the book that turned me towards Seminole Maroon. Once I showed him my documentation, he was blown away, and he submitted it 
to the Smithsonian Institution Museum of American Indians, where the researchers and genealogists verified my documents, and I was chosen to represent Seminole Maroon descendants in their upcoming groundbreaking show called Indivisible, African Native American Lives in America. That came out in 2009. Uh, Dr. Roy wrote a 16,000-word essay about me and my family from my documentation, and it was featured in the American Journal of Ethnohistory, the world's preeminent scholarly organization on ethnohistory. They not only featured Dr. Melroy's essay on me, known as Mixed Race in the Seminole Nation, they even put my picture on the cover with my Fixico family dog's roll census card showing that my great-grandmother, Dinah Fixico, was full blood number 900 from the Oak de Archie band, and she was Wynn clan. How did the scholars know to find you? I began to be known by the scholars because I was writing to them. And say, like, uh, after Kevin Moore Roy, and he mentioned me in his book as an informant, and he just loved the documentation that I have. Then my next mentor was Professor William L. Katz. Bill and I became a radio interview team. He was a scholar. I was the descendant. What he liked about me is Kevin Moore Roy's meticulous documentation, footnotes, and all that. Bill wrote a book, The Black Indians, that was like an entry-level book for eighth-grade people and up. And so he didn't really, he would list references, but he didn't do footnotes. I made a good person for him because he knew everything about me was totally documented and it had been challenged and had met the challenge. Tell us about the 300 pledge you made in Brackettville, Texas, to the Black Seminoles who were gathered for a descendants reunion. Back to Black Indians, I would go around and I would do celebrity book presentations because when I first learned about my ancestry and I went to Brackettville, I told them, I said, you don't know me, but you have accepted me. And because you have accepted me, I bow to speak 300 times in behalf of our ancestors and you, their descendants, to help expand the world's body of knowledge about Seminole Maroons. Also later said, another vow, I say, and I will work not for profit, but for progress. So I was actually taking a vow of poverty, not realizing that I would need funds to do what I needed to do. Pompey, we first met because you were one of the featured speakers at the commemoration of the 200th anniversary of the destruction of the Negro Fort at Prospect Bluff in the Panhandle of Florida. That was a catastrophe for the Maroons at the fort. Tell us about how you got invited to that ceremony and your impressions of it. So now, as far as how did I get to Prospect Bluff, I have 375 WordPress blogs, and it was a U.S. FS archaeologist, Miss Rhonda Kimbrough. She had been following me. And so she invited me. She said, we can't pay for you to come, but you are invited to participate. I went and I felt because Abraham, who was documented at Prospect Bluff in that whole era of Lieutenant Colonel Nichols and Pensacola and all of that. All right. Rhonda Kimbrough invited you out to the ceremony. 
commemorating the 200th anniversary of the destruction of the Negro Fort at Prospect Bluff. She invited me. I came. I had created the Seminole Maroon Peace Belt Ceremony. And that ceremony I had created, and I've done it at Smithsonian. I've done it in St. Augustine. I've done it in Brackettville. I've done it deep in the jungle at night in Suriname. So I told them that I would do that because I thought it was a good time in view of the circumstances of that commemoration. And so she invited me. I came. And that's where you were at. And that's how we connected, Patrick. I've always felt that it's something the ancestors are there because when I was coming up, it was pretty rough for me coming up. So it was like when I found out who I was, I said, God, I feel like you cut a hole out of my heart. And now what do I do? And it was like the message was, fill it with your history and leave me alone. I don't have time for this baby stuff. I cut a hole in your heart. So the most important space in a bowl is the hole, idiot. Go away. Go do what you are appointed to do. And I literally have been afraid. It's not what I want to do. I want to do theater and salsa dancing. and I don't want to do this stuff. I'm afraid not to do it, that if a purpose comes to you and you at 52 and then you go do what you want to do, uh-uh, no. I felt that I had to come and I needed to come to bring that, the garotite. I gave it to the missile and also I was honored to do the ceremony and people seemed to accept. And another great thing is I was able to interact with high U.S. official and chiefs. I was able to interact with them. And that, to me, was historic. That meant so much to me. In my coming, I say, yeah, this is the true test of the Seminole Maroon Peace Belt Ceremony. If I can come to a situation like this, because no one there was guilty of it, and let's bless them for being there for that occasion. And let me do my very best in the performance of this. I was so glad to do it. I was glad that they accepted me. And wow, Bobby Henry, he's like the top medicine man in the world because I had made the peace belt. My biggest concern was how do I take me out of these because these are indigenous people that I'm going to be, I have to find how do I get me out. So what I did is I call those children up and I let them hold the peace belt. I said, now I have nothing else to do with it. And I asked Bobby Henry, I said, great chief, great medicine man, Bobby Henry, will you bless these peace belts? So the children were bringing innocence. I had to some way capture innocence. And with the children, totally innocent. And then when Bobby Henry put his blessing on it, I had removed me and touched on that part of it that was indigenous. That is the Seminole Maroon Peace Belt. It wasn't a belt, but the thinking on this is, remember, I'm on a budget. So sometimes they were keychains, sometimes they were necklaces. So the whole point is, one day, if everyone comes together and brings their peace belt and puts it together, it will be worthy of a peace belt. Pompey, please share with us. What you told that gathering, the 200th commemoration. This is the Seminole Maroon Peace Belt Ceremony. Great Spirit, we thank you for your son, 
our Father Sky, who covers us. We thank you for your daughter, our Mother Earth, who holds us. We, your grandchildren, who crawl upon your land, swim through your waters, and fly through your air. Today, we give honor to those of the two-legged clan who are to receive the Seminole Maroon Peace Belt. We ask that they be blessed according to the colors of the belt. The colors signify white is for peace, spirituality, and innocence. Green is for growth, renewal, prosperity, and health. Red is for victory, courage, and protection. Bone is for the family and the community. Brown is for your work, your school, your volunteerism. Yellow is for your hopes, dreams, and aspirations. Purple is for the generations. To every generation, there comes a blessing. Know your generation's blessing. Enjoy it and share it with others. To every generation, there comes a curse. Know the curse of your generation. Identify it and work to eliminate it so that you will not be passed on to the next generation. It will not be passed on to the next generation. The clear bead is for wisdom, judgment, the ability to choose the right role models and the ability to make the right decisions. We believe that we all have three chances to make a good decision. They are number one, before. Before you do something that you don't feel certain is right, don't do it. Talk to someone who knows best before you take action. Two, during. If you are doing something that you don't feel is correct, stop it. Number three, after. If after you have done something that you know was wrong, don't ever do it again and seek counsel. We ask that you be protected from the unforgiving moment. The unforgiving moment is the moment that you wish you had back so that you could make a different choice than the one that you now regret. Finally, we believe that the Great Spirit gave all the grandchildren a night and a day. In the morning, some grandchildren begin their day in a hole, but if they work, they can end their day on a hill. In the evening, some grandchildren begin their night on a hill, but if they sleep too long, they can wake up in a hole. The Great Spirit gave all of the grandchildren the same gift of 24 hours. The Great Spirit also allows that the door to the treasures of the subconscious powers be open at the two twilights. In the morning, when the body is asleep, but the mind is awake, and at night, in the same condition, just prior to slumber. We ask that you be blessed from the seven winds, be blessed from the east, west, north, and south winds. Oh, and be blessed from the upwind and the downwind, and most importantly, from the center wind that blows inside the three hearts of humanity, from the public heart, the private heart, and most definite from the secret heart. We ask that these recipients and the whole world be blessed for as long as the grass grows and the river flows. That's it, Patrick. <laughs> Pumpy, a most heartfelt delivery. I'm ready to say thank you for joining us for the Seminole Wars, but I think you've got something to give us on your way out. Patrick, you're going to make me play a harmonica and leave.
song came from Africa. The Mbala people brought it to Veracruz. And so it's Harocho. It's a song of protest. Thank you for having me. Much love to you, my brother. And thank you for your distinguished service to our country at so many different levels. So thank you and have a good one. Seminole Maroon Peace Belt Ceremony, copyright by Phil Fixico, 2004. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep this show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation, 2022. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden. Roast em, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.